Welcome to the Tech Health Podcast, presented by Nuffield Health. Hello everyone, I'm Saul Sherry. Welcome to this, the first ever Tech Health Podcast. In each episode, we're going to be exploring the point where health and technology intersect. In this episode, I sat down with Alan Payne, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Nuffield Health, who is also Non-Executive Director with the Northern Health Science Alliance and Professor of Intelligent Systems at University College London. Alan and I discussed artificial intelligence and health with a focus on what data, when treated correctly, can do for health in real time. And we finish up this first episode with a quick spin around London's Wearable Tech Show. But first, Alan Payne on how artificial intelligence can and will change healthcare. So, healthcare is changing. Healthcare is changing in a number of ways. It's changing in the ability for us to target um, particular uh, issues with personalised medicine. It's changing with the impact of uh, uh, the genome and what we can understand um, from, from, from that. Um, it's changing from access to information, whether it's consumers being able to browse uh, the internet uh, to understand what their condition could be. Um, all these are, are, are fantastic uh, changes, but for me, there's one that is probably larger than all of the others. And that's the advent of cognitive computing or artificial intelligence. And there's a number of reasons why. Um, firstly, if we look at the volume of information from all of those previous things I've just discussed, it's impossible for the human mind to interpret that volume of information. It's just physically impossible. In fact, if you, uh, you, you, you look at some of the statistics on this, um, IBM is a good example, um, have said that there has been more data created in the last two years in digital formats than has ever existed in human history in any format from Rosetta Stones all the way through to, uh, to libraries. Um, and that's just in the last two years. So all of this information is being created and generated. Um, you have the advent of wearables, the impact of the genome. All of these things are impossible for us to interpret without the ability to crunch this data in some new way. So for many years, uh, artificial intelligence has been uh, a promise from science fiction all the way through to some of the work in the early 90s. And it's really in the last three or four years that a number of um, groundbreaking technologies have made this mainstream and applicable to healthcare. Uh, the first is a concept called natural language processing. This is the ability to understand human speech in the variety of ways that it could be spoken. Um, so no matter from what walk of life you are, from uh, even during the day, your answer to even a simple question could vary quite considerably. But what you need is something to interpret, just like a human would, what that is, and that's called natural language processing. Interestingly, it has the ability to engage with the consumer considerably better, because you're talking in a language that they can understand. Uh, the second part of this uh, that, that's, that's enabled the breakthrough is in what's called deep learning, and you've seen examples of this with, uh, with Google's DeepMind quite recently, uh, and its ability to win at Go, um, but also more recently in uh, their ability to, to interpret and see the holistic um, uh, opportunity of millions of records that the uh, NHS have released to them in a pseudo-anonymized format. Um, and it's this, this capability to understand patterns um, without going through uh, a, 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 an algorithmic format. It thinks what's called heuristically, like a human mind does. 
So it removes all of the things that can't possibly be true before it even starts to work on what could be. And it does this in parallel. So it can run millions of these hypotheses in parallel. It's really limited by, by, um, by IT horsepower, CPUs. So the ability to crunch all of this data in a way that a human would, but to do it at scale, is what makes this really exciting. And that's really what medicine is around. It's about understanding the individual. But the individual is so complex, it's impossible to do except at very general means. So the ability for these two particular components of artificial intelligence, cognitive computing combined, natural language, and the ability to crunch enormous amounts of data, petabytes of information in real time, trained by a human, makes this absolutely fascinating. When you say natural language processing, one, is our very British love of sarcasm not going to uh, trip that system up? And two, are we envisioning a system where a doctor will speak into a device and get returns on that in real time? Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think um, I, I can actually give you a real, time, a real example of this. Uh, I've actually built a, um, uh, a system at the, um, uh, at the university um, with artificial intelligence with IBM Watson, which is one of the more famous systems. Um, uh, it's famous for winning a, a, a game show in the America called Jeopardy. <coughs> and what was, uh, what's interesting about the prototype is that um, we actually built and trained IBM Watson to be either directive or supportive as two personality types that were best engaged with you. Supportive is friendly, fluffy, there, there, there. Directive is more stern and, yes, sarcastic. So the, the, the American IBM system, they were absolutely so upset with me because I taught IBM Watson sarcasm. In fact, I told them how ironic that was. So actually, it is true, you can teach a computer sarcasm. They don't like it very much, but, um, but actually they, uh, it can be. And sarcasm is, is part of British life, it's part of who we are. Um, some people react very well to it, some don't. The point is that the system, or the cognitive computer, will work out what works best for you based on how you respond. And so that, presumably, is happening in real time? Yes, real time. And that can be either text, um, as if you're having a conversation like on iMessage. I, I send a message to you, we send one back. And that could also include um, using the number 8 for, 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 for L8R, L8R, later. Uh, so we'll actually understand um, SMS speak, as if you're speaking to your 13-year-old daughter. So that's opposed to a system where if I want my phone to understand a word not built into it, I have to go into a, a custom dictionary and add it? No, it will understand it out of the box. So that you don't need, there's no dictionary updating, it learns how you want to speak, and it will confirm whether or not it understands you. It won't have to answer you, ask you a second time because it understands that's how you want to be communicated to. So you are radically changing the way of interaction um, with a computer. Actually, you think you're talking to a human. So thinking about Streams, which is the app developed uh, to focus on renal failure, accessing a huge data set and using information gained from that to assist individual patients. Can you give us a picture of, of how that would work? It, it would be a doctor at a bedside accessing the app? Yeah, so the, the, the key point here is that it's real-time, so it's crunching data real-time. So um, uh, w one of the scenarios and one of the research initiatives uh, we're looking at is can we predict heart failure? Well, to do that you need a number of things. You need blood pressure, you need an ECG, you need heart rate variability, a number of other things. 
but it's also um, uh, necessary to have environmental variables like um, weather, uh, where you are, um, and a thousand and one other things that could, could be associated with that. Um, that's an example. If you can crunch that data real time and return a response, um, we can start to build, if you like, real time Amazon recommender for health and well-being. And that's particularly why Nuffield is interested in this, because we see uh, this as being a huge opportunity to prevent people from entering into the healthcare system. And we know that if we can uh, improve demand, it is significantly more economic than improving supply. So providing it on the consumer side as opposed to just inside the healthcare system? Yes. Okay. That has huge benefits for healthcare systems outside of just the private healthcare market, but also any national grade system as well. So I'm a doctor at the bedside getting instant feedback telling me what maybe the next course of action for this patient would be, or I'm a consumer and uh, I have a, a device, an AI driven device within my smartphone which tells me, actually Saul, you've maybe had one too many burgers this weekend, that's not the best choice you can make at this point. Yeah, and it's, it's, these are really two sides of the same coin. Um, from, the, from the clinician, we will never take decision making from them. Uh, and I would um, uh, holistically uh, disagree with with um, or, or with that. However, um, being able to crunch through huge amounts of data to offer the best alternatives for the clinician is massively time saving, and that's fundamentally where uh, these systems are heading into clinical decision support. In fact, one of the most famous examples of I is IBM Watson working with Cleveland Clinic for cancer diagnosis and treatment. Is there room within the AI or app framework? to change the way doctors actually give care and nurses give care? So again, as, um, the, the, the trick here is to look at your health holistically. It's, um, if we look at things in isolation, so if the GP uh, looks at you, he's seeing you for a few minutes, eight, nine minutes if you're lucky, <laughs> um, and he's only seeing a sliver of your life. He doesn't know your lifestyle except by asking questions. Um, he doesn't know your attitude, your behaviour, your ability to adhere to a medication regime, and so on and so forth. Uh, or alternatively, uh, what your risk factors are in terms of um, necessarily, you know, are, are you a smoker? You may not even know that. So by understanding per someone's behaviour, we're more likely to be able to make an impact on your ability to make those changes that you need. And again, if we can talk to you, either sarcastically, or through um, supportive or any one of the 57 other personality types that we can apply. Um, we've got more of a chance of working with you digitally. If we can do it digitally, we can do it faster, better, cheaper. And when we need to, we can triage you into physical appointment. And there's been some less positive noise about the sheer breadth of the data that's been made available. If we, if we take streams, for example, it's not just data from patients based around their kidneys, it's, it's based around pretty much every medical touch point they will have had. Uh, how important is it for the doctors that that breadth of information is available? Uh, so you, you've hit on a really, uh, a really big issue. Um, and I'm a, a passionate believer in, in privacy. Um, and ultimately, everything has to be at a patient consent level. So there has to be a very overt, very simple explanation. In fact, I've, I've actually lectured on ethics in software. Um, the issue for me is that the industry doesn't go far enough to protect people's privacy. All you have to do is, uh, if you want the detail, have a look at a, uh, a Facebook privacy statement or non-privacy statement, as I would call it. Um, we need to be better than that, especially in Nuffield Health. Uh, we owe a bigger duty of care to our patients and our customers. 
So for me, uh, it is a very simple overt opt-in to be part of these research initiatives. Um, having said that, there are very few people that actually opt out when offered these scenarios. And I've worked in, funnily enough, in Australia and in other areas, um, where actually uh, the number of people that actually opt out is a handful. Is it overly simplistic to think that that data would stream in if it was that transparent, and maybe these companies are afraid of something they shouldn't be afraid of? Yeah, again, you're going to have all um, a variety of opinions on that. Uh, again, for us, uh, for me, providing the consent is incredibly clear and in consumer language to say we will be using your, your information for the following purposes, then I think we're in safe territory. Uh, but we cannot assume opt-in. Are there any organisations that you can think of that do the transparency of the opt-in well? No, <laughs> to be quite frank. Um, no, it, it's a difficult area. And at the, at the end of the day, um, especially at Nuffield Health, we have a higher duty, I think, than a lot of other companies. We are a charity. We have very strong uh, ethics. Um, we will never use the data for anything apart from research or for the benefit of a customer. Uh, and even for research, it would need to be heavily anonymised. Um, that said, we do have a bank of data that will be incredibly useful for research purposes if blended with other like-minded companies. Uh, and there are several that would be, would be of interest um, um, for that. Mayo Clinic is another good example. But we will never, ever use the data for you know, Philip Morris or for you know, other nefarious purposes. Just going back to the, as you called it, pseudo-anonymised data in question, um, is it clear to people what kind of anonymization has gone on there? Has it been transparent enough? No, I don't think so. And I think, um, you know, it, it's still possible to identify people is the issue. Um, what's, the, what's the measure that you would use? I, I'm not sure I, I know. Uh, uh, you know, the NHS does have a, a, a criteria for that. Um, is that suitable enough? I don't know. But ultimately, it comes down to um, the opt-in. that uh, you, you will use, be able to use your data, which we will not be able to identify you in any way, shape or form. So you need to remove... Obviously, names and date of births and and, uh, and various things like that. So, to help with the clarity and to, to make more data available to make these decisions, do you think there's a, a legal thing? There are laws that we should change in that space? Uh, possibly. Um, again, I think it's beyond laws. Uh, I think this is an ethics issue, um, and therefore very difficult to navigate. Um, you know, it is done. Um, uh, during the, uh, the, the inability for companies to research on stem cells, especially in America, uh, for religious reasons, companies move their, uh, their research to Singapore. So, you know, other companies and countries will find ways to, to research these areas. Um, to my mind, you know, <clears throat> you can argue about the benefit to, the, to mankind that research should continue, but there has to be an ethical boundary. And at Nuffield Health, we have to be very clear where that is. So from your point of view, from Alan Payne's point of view, if AI is given the oxygen it needs to thrive within healthcare, what does the future of healthcare provision look like within the UK and globally? So uh, with my personal crystal ball, um, I predict it's that um, care will be predominantly delivered through AI. Uh, diagnostics will be done at source. Uh, using handheld devices and, and scanners, particularly at the genome level. I think um, 1,000 base pair analysis will be matter of fact, which is the, uh, you know, the where majority of um, analysis will take place at the genome level. 
Um, from that, we'll know what uh, people's predilection is for certain uh, diseases, and we'll be able to, to build um, considerably better preventative techniques, whether it's um, behavioural um, or, or, or um, uh, pharmaceutical. I think the advent of personalised medicine will enable uh, longevity to increase significantly. And there was a wonderful article in The Economist a few years back around, has the world's first 1,000-year-old person already been born? And I think quite probably. Um, I think the, the advent and the speed of which we're decoding genomes and we're targeting, um, and I think we haven't seen the first generation of, uh, of, of this, these personalised uh, tools coming through. Um, as we understand more uh, around the relationships of these things, and I think this is where cognitive computing will, will deliver it, it's the ability to do that real-time diagnostic. I think it's just the opportunity to make a difference, um, especially in the, uh, with the advances being made in digital health. Um, I, I joined and, and, and you know, Nuffield Health specifically to build what's called connected healthcare, the ability to follow a customer no matter where they are in the journey and offer them the best possible care starting with digital, but triaging them as quickly as possible into physical, uh, which is really what, what, we're, um, what we are doing. So for me, this ability to, to triage you uh, using digital tools, but quickly reinforcing that into the physical world as quickly as possible is gonna be our sweet spot. So connected healthcare. So that was Alan Payne, Chief Digital Information Officer at Nuffield Health, talking briefly there about the world's first 1,000-year-old man. So I was just sitting here wondering what the world's first 1,000-year-old man would look like when in walks Chris Brunner, the Senior Clinical Content Producer at Nuffield Health. Hi, Chris. Hi, Saul. So, Chris, you've been to the Wearable Tech Show 2016, is that right? Yeah, it was on at Excel London not too long ago, um, and everybody who's anybody in wearable tech seemed to be there. Um, from the big players right down to sort of grassroots startups. And I walked in with a pretty uh, narrow view, I guess, of, of what, a, what a wearable could be. I and mean, when I say to you wearable, what do you think of? Well, I, I think I'm wearing one right here on my, my wrist, a, a black bit of plastic that, that tells me how many calories I haven't burnt yet today. <laughs> exactly, and that's exactly how I thought about wearables as well. Um, that is what you see out there on the street most of the time. But I walked out of the Wearable Tech Expo realizing that uh, wearables have, have moved from the wrist to all over the body, um, including one company that has really centered on their niche. Uh, they've taken the wearable right down the body and into the shoe, uh, focusing on what a lot of people are doing uh, to stay fit running. So I'm gonna just do a quick on-the-spot demo here. So I'm uh, running on my toes, and then I'm gonna run uh, back on my heels, and then in the midfoot, and then uh, I'll just try uh, a few other things as well, so we can look at that in the data. When I press stop, I can press send, and it sends the data up to a cloud. My name's Andy Statham. I did my PhD at uh, the Sports Technology Institute in, uh, in Loughborough. I then went on to work for the National Research Institute in the Netherlands. During that time, we'd worked on a number of wearable sensing technologies. Since then, uh, we've spun them out of TNO to form the company Atogear, and uh, that's the technology you see in front of you today. We've got a, a smart insole. It, it slips inside your existing shoes, so it's very uh, wearable, very comfortable. We have uh, people walking around it on a day-to-day -day basis, but also running marathons with uh, 
without noticing they're wearing anything. But at the same time, we have a Bluetooth-connected device that can uh, analyze a lot about uh, the way you're moving. Basically, it's flexible electronics. So we've got smart electronics in there which are printed that allow us to, to measure uh, a good dynamic range of pressure. It's spatially distributed, so it's spread across the whole insole. And that means we can measure the role of the foot and how it's interacting with the ground. If a user puts this in their shoe and, and goes for a run, what kind of information are they going to be fed back? If you're using it to, during your run, what uh, we effectively do is break down your running technique into basic components. Um, an example of that is uh, looking at the, uh, the way the foot is contacting the ground. So for a lot of uh, runners that are starting out, they'll tend to uh, have very big steps and land heavily on the heel. Whereas a lot of coaches will advise you to uh, reduce that stride length and uh, land more away from the heel or even towards the mid or sometimes towards the forefoot region. Um, but it's very hard to feel where your foot is landing on the ground because you have a shoe around it. Particularly if you're an inexperienced runner, it's very hard to understand what's going on. So what we do is we give a live feedback with every step you take that indicates how your foot is hitting the ground. So if you're hitting the ground in a correct way, then you can continue running like normal. But if something changes, you receive a vibration on your uh, smartwatch uh, or on your phone, and then we can uh, help them to make corrections step by step to uh, readjust their running technique. Of course, afterwards, you can get the full analytics if you want to really get into the data. When you're in the moment whilst you're running, you really focus on the real-time feedback. That not only has obviously a beneficial effect on, on people's running performance, but I suppose it also reduces the risk of injury. That's indeed a lot of the research that we've done. Uh, we've performed a couple of PhD uh, projects and uh, we've done our own internal research also with other universities. And we learn a lot of things about uh, what aspects of running technique can contribute to your injury risk. And of course, there's no guarantees when you're running, you can always trip over or injure yourself, but what we can see is trends in data and, and uh, and that means we can understand something about characteristics that can give you an increased or reduced injury risk. That was Andy Statham uh, from Atto Gear. That's a, a wearable uh, tech company based in the Netherlands. What do you think they would have to tell you about your running style, Chris? Uh, they'd probably have a good laugh about it. Um, Andy was demonstrating the model to me earlier in that piece, and uh, he was trying to run poorly so that uh, you would see um, what a bad run style looked like within the app. Um, I'm sure I would probably nail that first time. Speaking of being really bad at things, I've got a four and a half month old son, so I haven't slept properly since the NHS choir at number one in the charts. But I believe you may have seen a device that actually goes off body to measure sleep. I did. Um, it was called Bedit, actually. Um, I spoke to a man called uh, Yari, who explained it to me, and uh, this is the first time I had heard about things known as nearables as opposed to... Nearables. Yeah, nearables as opposed to wearables. Um, but I hadn't really heard of them in the biological space, because generally it would make sense that to sense your body rhythms and things like that, that the the sensor would need to be on you, and need to, you'd need to be wearing it. But with better, it actually uh, goes into someone's bed, so you leave it behind and then you lie down on top of it every night, um, which I thought was fascinating. Good sleep is kind of a foundation of your well-being, because if you sleep badly, you eat badly. If you sleep badly, you don't have energy to exercise. You don't perform in your professional life. That's the reason good sleep is, is very important. Why have you guys decided to go for a, not a wearable as such, but a device that actually embeds into someone's bed? 
Well, Bedit is uh, established by medical doctors, professors, researchers in the university world. And the call, the intention was to develop product which you can use without need to wear anything in your party. Because there are quite a few individuals who don't like to wear anything when they sleep. A lot of people don't even, they don't, they don't want to use a wristwatch, they don't want to use any belts on top of your chest to trace your heartbeat, but it is invisible. So is this what is being called a, a nearable device rather than a wearable device, or is that it's sort of somewhere in between? You, you could call it nearable, yeah. It, it need to be, it doesn't have to be direct contact because you can put it under your bed seat or under your mattress topper, but it needs to be under your body. So you could call it nearable. How does the device work? So it looks like a, a plastic strip that goes across the width of your bed. How does it actually pick up the data? It's a force sensor. So it tracks every single tiny force movements thereof. The scientific definition is called ballistocardiography. So when your heart beats, there are a lot of forces. And when you breathe, there are a lot of forces. When you move around during the night, there are a lot of changes in forces. And all of those are tracked. And then there's a Bluetooth radio, which then transmits the data to your mobile device. And the data analysis is done in a mobile device. And from the mobile device, it's sent to the cloud. And then you can view the data also over the web with whatever device. So because this goes into someone's bed, essentially, what happens when there's more than one person? Well, if there's more than one person, let's say it's, it's wide enough for two persons, then it tracks the person's data who sleeps on top of the sensor. If there are, let's say, there are mother and child on top of the same sensor, it tracks the strongest signal, but it tracks all the movement. And if you sleep with your kid or with your pet, you don't sleep that well. So the results correlates also the quality of the sleep. Indeed. So this seems like it's, it's gone a long way towards recording all sorts of body functions while you sleep. What does the future hold for this type of product? Well, I think the future is uh, overall in this kind of devices, we are going more and more of a self-diagnostic on the digital solution, meaning we have a lot of medical partners who use better data remotely to follow up how the treatment is working to their patients. So I would see that uh, in the future there are going to be a lot of intelligence beds with Pedit providing the data directly to the people who is in the bed or to some service provider who is looking the data on behalf of he or she. So that was uh, Yari Rini from Bedit, the uh, nearable that goes in your bed. So you know that could be something you could use to maybe try and get a better night's sleep. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the solution that we're looking for. I, mean, I think the, the only thing that will heal this is is time. So who else did you see at the wearable tech show? Well, the last conversation I had, and I think the most interesting one for me, was with a man called Andreas Kedoff, and he's uh, the CEO of BioVotion. Um, they're a Swiss company, and they're using wearables in the medical space. So they've had to uh, jump through a lot of hoops to make that happen. Um, and it actually ends up in being a, a very different kind of wearable than what you and me might use to, to keep fit.
our team um, uh, has been involved in wearables for about 15 years. Uh, at the time we started, actually the, the term wearable wasn't used. It was sort of more body-worn sensing and physiological monitoring. We want to bring accurate monitoring, truly accurate monitoring, because accurate monitoring means it becomes actionable. It, you can utilize it, you can take that data, combine it, and create something that is maybe more valuable than just showing a heart rate. And the way you do that is uh, by combining essentially three elements. You need to have a very, very solid and well-defined sensor skin interface that allows you the, the accurate measurement of your basic raw sensor signal that you can then translate into a heart rate reading, etc. You need to find spots on the body that allow you to do that because uh, uh, well, uh, a good interface between sensor and skin means essentially tight attachment, uh, which is a bit difficult on the wrist because it becomes painful. Uh, so what we've done is we moved all of that on the upper arm. So we can actually do a very well-defined attachment on the upper arm that can be tolerated. We've had that device that I'm holding in my hands here, we've had it on users for more than four years. So we really, really know what it, as it comes to, to long-term uh, monitoring and long-term sort of attachment of a device. So attachment is a key element, then your sensor design is a key element, paired with smart algorithms. What about putting it on the upper arm makes it accurate enough to use in this sort of clinical space that you've been talking about? Let's say the user, a patient, a user, you can tolerate a little bit of a more a tight attachment on the upper arm much more than on the wrist, which means we can actually create that sort of sub-ecosystem or microclimate of that sensing device and your tissue in a way that we achieve a more accurate reading. Uh, and again, that's, that's what we're interested in. And, and the side effects that we actually get from that is, obviously there's no need for a display if you put something on the upper arm because it's underneath clothes, typically. So uh, no display means we save quite a bit of energy. Uh, we have quite a large battery in sight, uh, uh, which allows uh, a runtime of a couple of days. And, uh, and another side effect that comes along with that is it's much more discreet. So you do not expose everybody, look, I'm monitoring myself and all that, because some people may not like that. And it's interesting to see, maybe at a show like this here, everybody, you know, represents and presents his fitness and how well he is and all that, etc. But those people that really, really need a wearable with sort of an actionable sort of background behind it to do something, uh, uh, maybe with even a chronic disease, etc., they are not really interested in showing off what they're all wearing. That's Andreas Kudov, um, CEO of BioVotion. Uh, I think he, he left off on a really interesting point there, Saul, um, just about the fact that uh, people who really need a wearable uh, in the clinical space, who have something wrong with them, who, who really need something actionable from it, um, aren't really interested in advertising that to everyone. So uh, hence the idea of hiding that wearable away. I suppose that makes sense. You know, if it was cool to be seen walking around with an IV drip, We'd all be doing it. <laughs> it's, it's funny to think of uh, a fitness wearable as not so much a, a status symbol, but a, a status of fitness symbol. So look mm. at me, I'm forever keeping fit. Indeed, and, that, and that's the point that Andreas raises really well. Um, and he points out that at that expo, most of the exhibitors were working in the fitness space. So they're quite unique in the fact that they're working in... Uh, in, in medical scenarios and clinical spaces. So there are a lot of other exhibitors there working currently in the fitness space, but uh, have designs on, on moving into that clinical space because that really seems to be where the future is headed for these kinds of things to actually get uh, actionable results, um, not just for your fitness, but to actually perhaps save your life. And moving into that clinical space is not an easy feat, um, as Andreas told me. 
it needs to be watertight. You need to be able to sanitize it. You need to be able to actually clean it with alcohol, which means you cannot have sharp hooks and corners and all these things, etc., where maybe grease or maybe even blood can somewhere you know hide in a way that uh, that you maybe have even a, a potential for infections and cross contamination and all that. So you need to be able to clean it. You need to be uh, able to provide it in a way that it's so easy to use that users don't need to push buttons and operate things. Preferably, users even should not be able to adjust anything. That doesn't mean that we actually don't believe they can, uh, they, they can't do it. Uh, but it's essentially, in a way, we would like to have that device attached and you have a little guardian angel above you that will take care of that and you can just fire and forget, put it on and that's it and you don't have to worry about that. We do not want to increase complexity and the burden to these people, but we would like to give something that truly adds value, means also no cables completely eliminated. Uh, this is the charger. It's a wireless charger. It can again be very easily cleaned. Uh, no sharp corners and all that. It's medical grade as well. It's part of the medical device. That's something we felt is important as well. So again, to summarize, no cables, no buttons, very easy to use, and this discretioning element and cleaning and sanitization. You've taken away all of the problems for the user and also potentially for the, the monitor of that data, the medical services provider. Who benefits most from this? Is it people with chronic diseases, uh, things like that? And, and who is going to benefit in the future from technology like this? These people, they need to be able to access the actionability, what comes out of such a device infrastructure, which means, first of all, the patient needs to be in a situation that he really, really is willing to wear that device. In order to do that, he needs to have a benefit from that, and it should not be too much of a burden. And then the data, obviously, that is being collected needs to go into an infrastructure where it's being further digested and presented to those that can actually then derive an action from that in a way that their service becomes better. And that's what we're interested in. Someone recently said, hey, Andreas, this is actually like a, a little hospital worn on the upper arm. I think that's exactly how we would like to have it perceived uh, and what we're pursuing, a little hospital on the upper arm. That was uh, Andreas Kaduff, CEO of BioVotion, um, Swiss medical uh, wearables company. Um, I think that last statement that he made about the, it being a little hospital on the upper arm, um, that's, a, that's a real leap from most of the wearables we know and use today. So a hospital on the upper arm, a personal trainer in your shoe, and with any luck, a four and a half month old somewhere down the corridor sleeping in a different room. Indeed. Sounds like a, a recipe for a, for a healthy life. Well, that's it for the first episode of the Tech Health Podcast, presented by Nuffield Health. Thanks from me, go to Alan Payne for the interview and to Chris Brunner for the coverage of the Wearable Tech Show 2016. You can find this podcast at soundcloud.com slash tech-health. You can also find great advice on getting and staying healthy at nuffieldhealth.com. My plan is to get this podcast up on iTunes and whatever your favourite podcast repository might be. But I'll be the first to admit I have very little idea what I'm doing. So watch this space. <laughs>